many times when I am trying to figure out what I'm going to preach, it is somewhat of an arduous process because I have all these ideas in my head about what I want to talk about, but what I always want to talk about is not necessarily what God wants me to say. And I've kind of learned through trial and error that he knows a lot more than I do. Last week we talked about being thankful in all things. And it's pretty easy to understand. We kind of went through all of it and talked about how that we need to be able to, to be content and thankful for what God has done for us. But you know what happens sometimes is we get to this time of year where it's time for the holidays. And while many are, are, are buying gifts and many are meeting families around the dinner table, there are also plenty of people who don't have quite as much to celebrate. Maybe it's because they've lost a loved one around this time of year. Maybe they've lost their job and, and they don't have the money to do all of the things that they want to do. And the stresses of this life can take that one day of Thanksgiving and kill the thanks every day after. What I mean by that is when we sit around the dinner table on Thanksgiving, we, you know, most people have traditions of talking about everyone say something you're thankful for. Everyone think of something that God has done for you and, and, and talk about it and give thanks, which is good. It's biblical. We should always do that. But then Thanksgiving is over. We go back to our daily jobs. We go back to the, to the grind of bills and, and getting kids ready and dealing with, you know, coworkers that sometimes need a little extra grace. And that thankful spirit that we had to start with seems to lose a little bit of its energy. So tonight, I want to talk to you, and this most likely I'm going to have to divide this into two parts, but what I want to talk to you about tonight is just simply this, an altar of thanksgiving. An altar of thanksgiving. It's very fitting that the song choice tonight was specifically talking about the name of Jesus. In the Old Testament, names were very important. In our age today, names are just whatever's popular at the time. Most of the time, people don't choose names because it has some big, grand, you know, religious meaning or spiritual meaning. It's whatever they think is cool at that time. Parents name their kids. And I have to wonder sometimes, 10 years later, they're like, why did I call my kid that? I, uh, I have heard some... Very unique names working in the emergency room. You see people from every area of life. But in the Old Testament, in Hebrew tradition, that, that's not really how it was. Names were given usually for one of two things. Either it was given before the child was ever born as a promise of who the child would be. Or the name was given at birth or shortly thereafter based on the circumstances of the time. We hear names that are called where it is my son of consolation or, or those that are talking about how that they were born in tribulation and those kinds of things. But when we talk about God, it's a little different because God is God, right? And he, he encompasses all things. So for me to try to sit here and give God a name that encompasses all of his attributes, honestly, it's probably not possible. I don't know that my human brain can really fathom the totality of who God truly is. 
So in the Old Testament, when we hear names like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom, we often think of that in context of a name of God. And, and, and that's partially true. I'm not saying that's not true. But I think it's really important we understand how that part came about. You see, it wasn't just a name that someone came up with and said, okay, God, I want to call you Jehovah Jireh today. It was almost always when they experienced some kind of difficult situation, some kind of trial, and in that time of desperation, God came through for them. And then in that interaction of God's miraculous hand delivering for the people, they said, okay, this day God was my provider. And thus the term Jehovah Jireh. So I want to go through a couple of these. There's really seven. I, I definitely cannot get through seven tonight. So I'm going to maybe break it in half. But I, I want to start with possibly one of the most important, if, if you can rank them in importance. Go to Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 22. Starting in verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here, am, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Now I want to pause right here for one moment because I want you to, if you can, just try to put yourself in this situation. God, who told Abraham that he was going to be a father of many nations. God who told Abraham that he was going to be blessed and that his seed would be as the sand and as the stars, uncountable. And yet now we find that same God telling Abraham to go and sacrifice his son. Now, I don't know that there's ever a situation in which this would be an easy decision, but there's something that happens in the next verse that's really amazing to me. Because it's one thing, at least in my, my human brain, if God told me right now to do something and I, I felt his presence and right there in the moment I felt God telling me to do it, I could see where maybe that would be a little easier to go through with hearing the voice right there. But what's amazing is in the next verse, it says on the third day, Meaning that from the time that Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, it took three days of journey to get to where he was going to make the sacrifice. Plenty of time for doubt to start to creep in. Plenty of time for fear. And, and, and maybe it wasn't really God's voice I was hearing. Maybe I just had a little bit too much pizza the night before. All that time, three days to really hear all of the outside influences and, and turn away and, and go back and say, this is too big of an ask, God. It's, it's too much you're asking me to give up my promise. 
So now we start back in verse 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. Every time I read that phrase, I can't get past both the, the, the I don't want to say irony, both the heaviness of that exact situation, but the beauty of what it's illustrating. So here is Abraham, who was told to take his son and sacrifice him. And that they're going to have to make a journey up to this mountaintop in order to do this. Not only is he bringing his son up to be sacrificed, he makes his son carry the wood that he would then lay on. And in my brain, it's like, that's crazy to me. But it's amazing because what happens as we get further along here, we see the type and shadow of another man who had to bear the wood on his back that he himself would also be sacrificed on. And it gives me a little deeper understanding, maybe a better appreciation for the sacrifice that God was willing to make. In verse 6 it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Nowhere do we read in this account that God said to Abraham that he would ultimately not really ask him to go through with it. Nowhere in the original instructions of God telling Abraham to go and sacrifice his son was he told, don't worry, I'll give you a lamb to offer up instead of him. So you can look at this statement in one of two ways. On one hand, you could say that he was making the, the inference that his son was the lamb for the sacrifice. Possible. He could also be just speaking out of faith. Because on one hand, he knew that God had already given him a promise. And he trusted that God is not a man that he should lie. Therefore, in his mind, as hard as it may have been to have these kind of two opposing thoughts, somewhere in his spirit, he still trusted God, even though he was headed up the hill to sacrifice his son. The other important thing to remember is that Isaac is not a kid. It is believed that Isaac at this point is somewhere in his early 30s, maybe late 20s. Some say that he was 33. I think it's a little bit of a stretch to fit the story and what it's paralleling. But the point is that he was an adult. He wasn't some young, impressionable kid of, of five years old that, you know, the dad could just kind of trick him and, and go along. He was an adult. He knew what was happening, but he still followed his father. Verse 11, or sorry, verse 10. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
Isaac willingly laid up on the altar. Still not knowing what was going to happen. I have to believe he started to put the pieces together when, the, when his dad pulled out the knife. And yet he still willingly stayed there. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Could I do that? Could I put myself on an altar willingly knowing what was about to happen, but still be obedient to the voice of God despite the sacrifice? I would love to say yes, unequivocally, it wouldn't be a hesitation, but I think if we were all honest, we're all human. We have moments of doubt. We have moments of unsurety. So we find Isaac laying here on the altar willingly. In my mind, I have to believe he was probably scared, confused. And now we find Abraham in verse 10 ready to go through with what God had asked him to do. In verse 11, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up. For a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And now verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. There is so much beautiful typology in this story. Of what Christ would do for the church. I find it very interesting that the mount and where this took place is also the mount in which Jesus hung on a cross. I find it very interesting in verse 14 that it says that to this day, as in when this was written, that that mount was referred to as the Lord shall be seen. That they were looking to this mountain after the story because now they knew there was a promise to come to the mountain. Unfortunately, the nation of Israel time and again refused to heed God's word, refused to to know what it is that God was trying to speak to them. And in fact, the Lord did come to that hill. And the Lord could have been seen by the nation on that hill. But because of their humanity and their blindness and their unwillingness to obey God's word, they missed what this story was pointing toward. Now, at the beginning of this, I said we were going to be talking about an altar of thanksgiving. An altar is a place that is built generally as a point of consecration. Many times an altar is built for repentance. But an altar is also built for worship. We see in the story of Abraham, when he messed up and he sinned, it says that he came back to the house of Bethel. 
the house of God. And he made there an altar. It was his way of remembering what God had told him and what he needed to do. The beauty of the altar that was made on this mountain by Abraham is that God took our place when we should have been the one sacrificed on the altar. We were the ones who sinned. Mankind was the one who made the mistake and owed the debt. But God is the one who willingly paid the debts. Like Isaac, Jesus himself carried up the wood that he would be sacrificed on. Like Isaac, he willingly put himself on the cross, meaning that at any moment he could have called in angels. He could have removed himself from that place, and yet he didn't. He stayed there willingly because his love for his people. So when this world looks at us and says, you cannot make it, your God cannot be real. I mean, look at the problems you're having. Look at all the trouble in your life. Therefore, you must not be in favor with God. And if we're not careful, we hear that voice in our ear day after day. And we start to get depressed, angry, potentially even resentful. Because we don't understand why God is allowing us to be in this situation. And yet God is trying to remind us that, hey, I am still Jehovah Jireh. I am the God that provided for Abraham. I am the God that provided for the world on Calvary. And I am still the God that will provide for you. It's easy to read stories like this and look at them on the big, big picture. But it's a whole other thing to really take it down to the personal level. To know that God loves us individually and that he will hold to his word and he will be our provider. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 15. I'm not doing these in any particular order. We talked about Jehovah Jireh first, and now we're moving on to Ephesians 15. And we're going to start in verse 18. Ephesians chapter 15, starting in verse 18. And it says this, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea... And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand. And all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea." So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Pause right here. Remember, Israel knew the story of Abraham on Mount Moriah. Much of ancient Hebrew culture and story was shared in the form 
of, of narration or stories that was passed down from person to person. So the people here, even though they had been in, in Egypt for quite some time and far removed from the, the mountain that Abraham was on, they would have known the story. It would have been something passed down for every generation. And now they have gone through the water. They have seen God deliver them miraculously. They saw God part the Red Sea, destroy the enemy. They saw the plagues that, that God brought upon Egypt. And yet all of this, all of these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders, and now they are three days out of Egypt. Three days. And they're getting a little thirsty and they don't have water. Verse 23 says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statue and an ordinance. And there he proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought unto the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. This is where we find the name Jehovah Raphi, the Lord that healeth thee. Here was a nation that had experienced God bringing plagues upon Egypt. The locusts, the darkness, the boils, even the death angel. They saw all of those things. And despite all of that, it took but a couple days for them to immediately go back the other way and start murmuring and complaining. And, you know, you just brought us out here to die. We don't have any water to drink. What were you thinking? But God's mercy, I mean, I, I, I can say this, but I don't know that I can truly articulate it the way I, I, I feel it in my heart. The mercy of God honestly confuses me sometimes. Because as a human, I look at this and, and I would be like, how, how dumb can you be? I mean, like you literally saw God split the Red Sea in half and you walked across it. It's but a couple days and already you're like wanting to give up. But the truth is, we, we do the same thing all the time. We come to church, we stand at an altar, we have some evangelist or missionary pray for us and, and we get a word of encouragement or they, that, that person speaks into our life, things that they could not have known except God had revealed it to them and we feel empowered and emboldened. And yet we leave here and we go back into the world and a few days and all of a sudden we're beginning to doubt. We're, we're unsure if God is really going to do those things that he, he promised us. Maybe God can't heal my sickness that I was told he would heal. Maybe God can't deliver me from the addiction that I'm facing. And yet what we see here is God warning the people, listen, you saw all of the plagues that fell on Egypt. If you will but stay 
in my word, if you will stay in my commandments and hearken to my voice, you won't have to fear the sicknesses of this world because I am the one who heals you. Now, there's something that we need to address before we move out of this because already I know that there are probably some individuals saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. God still allows people to get sick. Even if they have the Holy Ghost, there are still people who get sick. Right? Here's the issue. It's one thing to be sick in your physical body. It's a whole other thing to be sick within your soul. You see, all of mankind will face troubles and trials. We read through all of Scripture where it says, The rain falleth on the just and the unjust alike. We should not be surprised if we suffer. Jesus himself said if that he suffered and we're not better than the master, we can expect to suffer for his namesake also. But the promise that is spoken here is not saying you will never face hardship, not saying you will never be sick. But what he is saying is that if you will stay with me, I will keep your soul healthy. And then one day when this is all done, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more temporary trials of the flesh. God is not lying when he says that he is the God who heals. It just doesn't always happen in the way that we want it to happen. Or in the timing that we want it to take place. But know that God is fighting for you. Even when you don't understand why. Even if you don't understand why you're being asked to go upon the mountain. Sacrifice something you love. We have to know and have faith that God is our provider and that God is our healer. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 8. Before we start with this verse, let me give you just a little bit of context here. Unfortunately, in the book of Judges, what we find is the overwhelming majority of the judges, almost all of them, were not very good judges. And what's funny to me is that the reason that Israel needed judges in the first place is because they wouldn't listen to the prophets and the people that came before them. And so God had to bring about judges to carry out his will within the land. So in this story here, they are being, I guess you could say, vexed or tried by the Amorites. They are living in fear because they are afraid that the Amorite army is going to come in and destroy them. They, at this moment, many of them do not know or believe that God is actually going to do what their forefathers said that he would do. And I'll show you this here. Let's start in verse 8. So Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 8. That the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, 
in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in a place that pertained unto Joash, the Abizrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So just imagine here for a moment what's happening. So here's Gideon. He is at the threshing or at the winepress, but he's doing it in a, in a location that he can't be seen by other people because he's afraid if the, if the Amorites or if the Midianites see him, they're going to come and take his food. In verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now, no doubt, I'm sure most of you here have heard messages on Gideon and, and the, the seemingly odd phrase that is mentioned here in verse 12, because Gideon is hiding, literally hiding from the enemy, and yet the angel shows up and calls him a mighty man of valor. And 13, and Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all of this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might. And thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Pause right here. There is a principle that is mentioned here. Something that we individually and collectively have to understand. The world sees us for our failures. We see ourselves often for our weaknesses. But God sees us for our potential. The reason that Gideon was afraid is because what he saw in front of him was an insurmountable task that he did not have the courage or the confidence that he could face it. So in his own perceived weakness, it was easier for him to hide away than to be willing to fight for what he had been taught. So when the angel comes to him and calls him a mighty man of valor, Gideon almost immediately responds and he's like, you got to be joking, right? I'm like, I'm hiding over here, and where is God? He said he was going to, you know, do all of this great stuff, and look at us. We're all over here cowering, praying the, the Midianites don't kill us. But when the angel spoke to Gideon on behalf of God, he did not speak to him in his present status. He did not speak to him in the failings of those who came before him. He spoke to him in the potential that he could be in God. You see, the world makes us believe that our, our worth or that our strength and our, our ability is only solely defined by us and what we do. 
And if that is the case, then Gideon was definitely right to be hiding. But the beauty of God is that our strength, our ability to face those situations, despite all of our shortcomings, is not based on our strength. It's based on his strength. And if God is truly omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, if God looks at us and says, you're going to do this, we have to listen because he's not saying it because of how strong you are. He's saying it because of how strong he is. This is something that all of us face at times. We all have moments of doubt. We all have moments when things are going wrong and we begin to question, is, is this really maybe my fault? Maybe I'm just not good enough for God. Or maybe I've done too much or God doesn't care about me because I came from a broken home that has no apostolic lineage. But God's value in you is not based on any of those things. There are no prerequisites for God's love except for one. To willingly submit your heart to him. To allow him to take that strength and put it through you to reach a desired outcome. You know, some people, when I, when I talk to some people and I, I talk about this topic, I have heard in, in, in different forms basically saying, well, that, that's kind of like a cop-out. Like, you're, you're just saying, like, you don't have to be perfect and God's just going to do it all for you. And, and that's, you know, that must be nice. Must not be hard if you just think that someone else is going to do it all for you. But that comes with a, a fundamental lack of who God is. Because, see, the truth is, it's hard to truly submit. Our flesh fights every day for control. Our own failings and, 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 and traumas and our own history pulls at us in the flesh to say that God doesn't really love you or God doesn't really want to use you. So when I say just trust God, I'm not saying it flippantly that, you know, just say, okay, God, I believe you, and that's the end of it. Because just like Isaac and just like Jesus, we too have to put ourselves on an altar an altar that we must willingly stay on. That means it's daily. It's continuously. That's why Paul said, daily I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God. Paul didn't say, hey, I've already made it. I hope you guys get there soon. No, he said, listen, I've got troubles of my own. Because when I want to do good, I don't. And when I don't want to do bad, that I do. But it's not me, but the flesh within me. He was articulating for all who would read his epistles that you will struggle as long as you walk on this earth. But that struggle does not mean God does not love you. That struggle does not mean that God is disappointed in you. To the contrary, God is constantly calling you. Get back up and try again. Now look in verse 15. It says, And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith 
shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of an ephah of flour. The flesh he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there rose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee. Fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in the same land. Jehovah Shalom, I, I, I imagine all of us have heard that we know Shalom means peace. Peace, but not peace how we often think of peace. Because for us, we think of peace as in no trouble. Peace as in there's no trial, there's no difficulties at all. But the peace spoken of by here is that Gideon knew there was still a battle to fight. He knew there was still the Midianites out there. But his peace was now knowing that God was with him. And if God be for us, who can be against us? It's easy to say those phrases. Those little catchphrases that, you know, you go into some church services and, and the preacher will get up and he'll say, if God be for us, and the crowd will respond, who can be against us? But saying it out loud isn't enough if you don't actually believe it within yourself. Because the peace of God is the knowledge that though I go through trouble, I know that God is with me. It's exactly why in the book of Ephesians, when Paul is talking about the armor of God, he lists all of these items, but then he gets to the feet, and he says that the feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This armor was the armor of a warrior. This armor was the armor of someone going into battle. And yet, on this same suit of battle, the method of transportation was peace. Everyone in this room has faced trials. Some face trials to this day. And if you're not facing any trial at all, just wait. It'll come around again. But here's the great thing. It does not matter how big the trial is, how big the enemy is, 
how long the, the, the situation seems to last. If we truly believe that God is Jehovah Jireh, the provider, then it becomes easier to believe that God is also Jehovah Shalom. If I believe that God can provide for my needs, then it's far easier for me to walk in that peace of his presence because it's him that I trust in and not within myself. The, the main premise on why I wanted to bring up this topic, and I'm going to stop here, and I'm, I think on Sunday morning, first half, I'll, I'll talk, and I'm going to come back to some of these, but the, the reason that this, I guess, worked within my spirits this evening on, on what I was going to speak was because there are so many times in the holiday season where we, we maybe feel that spiritual high of, of, of singing hymns within church on special Christmas services and we see the, the Christmas plays and we have Thanksgiving dinner and all of these things, these emotions that get brought up. Because of the holidays. But then January comes around. And we realize we, we still actually do have bills to pay. And we still have jobs that we have to go to. And we still have co-workers that like to give us a hard time. And we still have family members who are sick and struggling. The holiday magic, so to speak, didn't just like take all of that away. And now we're faced with the situation of how do I remain at an altar of thanksgiving when all of the emotion is gone? When now it's that seemingly day-to-day -day grind and, you know, there's no one calling me to come over for pie and all of that good stuff. It's just me doing the, doing the daily grind. How can I stay at that altar of thanksgiving? What I would say to you is, write out the names of God. These attributes, these seven attributes that are mentioned here throughout the Old Testament. And when you pray, remind yourself, because you don't have to remind God. God knows who he is. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves, God, I know I'm struggling. I feel a little depressed. I feel a little uh, afraid, unsure. But I, I do remember that you said that you are Jehovah Jireh. I remember that you said that you would always be the provider. And though Christmas has passed, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When all of the hype fades, your ability to remain grateful will always come back to your personal altar of thanksgiving with God. Let's stand. I hope that in this first half of this message, if you will, that though these are likely stories you're all familiar with, though this is likely uh, names and things that you've heard before, I'm not bringing anything new, I hope that you will take this as an opportunity to really reflect on who God is and to reflect on what God has already done in your life. The reason that they call these places altars, the reason why they built monuments and landmarks in the land 
is as a physical reminder for them that when they were going through those struggles in their daily life and they would walk by a certain way and they would look over here and see the reminder, oh yeah, I remember when God saved my mom. I remember that I prayed for my mom for years. Twelve years I prayed for my mom who had backslidden. She got the Holy Ghost, became very involved and stayed faithful. And when she died almost two years ago, my heart was relieved in the knowledge that she was walking with God. But you see, in that 12-year span, there were plenty of times I got frustrated. There were plenty of times that I said, God, why? I have been praying for this month after month, year after year, and still you've not brought my mom back into relationship with you. But even though we have those moments of doubt, I remained faithful to God, and you know what? He was faithful to me. I want you to make those landmarks, those reminders for yourself. Don't listen to the temporary voices of doubt and disbelief. Remember the everlasting word of God, that he is your provider and he is your peace. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray as we go into this holiday season, Lord, that we would grow in our, our knowledge of you and in our appreciation for you, Lord. Let our heart and our minds continually seek you more. But Lord, I pray that as the holiday seasons pass, that you would help us to remember that you are the God in January the same as you were in December. I pray that you would help us to remember that you are that ever-present help in the time of need. That though there are things happening in confusion and darkness, that you are still the light of the world. Help us, O oh God, to be encouraged and help us to encourage one another. We love you and give you all the glory and honor. I pray that you would protect those who are traveling over this holiday season. In Jesus' name, amen.